This is the Ruminant Podcast. I'm Jordan Marr. The Ruminant.ca is a website dedicated to sharing good ideas for farmers and gardeners. Most of the content on the site involves me posting other people's photos of their innovative farming tools, techniques, and ideas. I'd love to have a contribution from you, so please take some photos of what you're doing and send them to me at editor at theruminant.ca. Okay, let's do a podcast. Okay, folks, so today's guest is... So my name is Jean-Martin Fortier, and I'm an organic grower uh, farming in Quebec. My farm is Les Jardins de la Grelinette, which is French for the Broad Fork, and uh, it's a micro farm. We farm on an acre and a half, and we've been doing so for um, almost 10 years now, a bit more, even. In case you can't tell, uh, I'm very excited about this episode. Jean Martin has written a book. Actually, he wrote a book a while ago in French. Uh, but he's he's just released an English translation of a book called The Market Gardener that reflects he and his wife's 10 years of hard-won experience in market gardening. They're both very, very successful at what they do, and Jean-Martin has written this book to share what they know with all of us. I've read the book. It's a very good book. I think it has all kinds of useful information for the experienced market gardener or brand new ones. I'm going to leave it at that because it's late and I want to get this episode up. I hope you enjoy this hour-long conversation with Jean-Martin Fortier. Incidentally, if you want the book, it will be launched uh, sometime within the next two to three weeks, uh, the current date being January 12th. So sometime around January 30th, perhaps a little later than that, you can get the book. But guess what? You can pre-order it now. So you can be just like me and pre-order the book by going to themarketgardener.com where there's a very simple purchase procedure or you can go and start bugging your local bookstore right now about it and encourage them to carry the book because it's going to be popular i promise so you can promise them okay here's the interview jean-martin fortier welcome to the ruminant podcast hey uh, thanks a lot it's great to be here well, I've been very excited to, to talk to you, Jean-Martin. You're becoming uh, a little bit of a rock star in the market gardening world, and uh, that's why I asked you to come on today. We're going to be talking about a forthcoming uh, English translation of a book that you've published in the last couple of years called The Market Gardener, A Successful Grower's Handbook for Small-Scale Organic Farming. Uh, I've read the book. I found it extremely good. I think it's going to be an excellent book for beginning market gardeners, but I also as a as a as a grower with a few years under my belt with my own business now, there's tons in there that I that I think will help my own growing. It it really seems like you have figured out uh how to be a very successful market gardener, Jean Martin. Well, uh Jordan, I I'm glad to hear that uh you've learned a thing or two from the book and uh, the whole idea behind it was to pass along what we've been doing with uh, the hope that it could uh, help other people, you know, really kickstart their project or uh, emphasize the idea that, you know, you don't need to have a big farm for it to be successful or profitable. It just there's, a different, there's different ways to go about it. Right, right. So, so maybe uh, what I want to do, we're going we're gonna to get into talking about the book, but maybe you can give us a little bit of history. So start by just uh, describe your current farm setup. You talk about small-scale farming. Give listeners an idea of uh, what your farm looks like. 
Well, basically, when we bought the farm here, that was in 2005, we had already been farming on rented land before, and uh, we started farming in New Mexico, so that was a long time ago, and uh, we were just growing, you know, veggies that we were selling at a farmer's market, and then we came back to Quebec, and we started our own thing on rented land, and I think we were growing in a, on a fifth of an acre on rented land, and at one point, we decided that we wanted to do this uh, as a career, and uh, we decided to take, you know, we wanted to take root here in the community, so we were looking for a place to buy, and we found this uh, 10-acre site, which had, you know, it was 8-acre woodlock with 2-acre prairie, in the middle of which had a rabbit house, like a little a farm, 40 by 100 building, and so we bought that, and uh, it's been ever since our constraint. So we only have two acres that was a prairie, and we've We've d- designed the farm so that on one and a half acre we can produce a lot of vegetables. So we, we've we've designed the farm thinking a lot in a permaculture way and and how we've framed it, how we've laid it out, so that it's real efficient, uh, standardized bed length, using permanent bed systems. Uh, that's why we don't we we don't have a tractor for the practical reason that tractor they take a lot of space even when they turn at the end of the row, so we decided to go without them, and we had visited in Cuba uh, the some years before something called organoponicos, which are like permanent beds that are because uh, the Cubans you know they've been farming without petroleum for a little while there, and they didn't have any tractor. So they reinvented their agriculture to, to have these permanent bed systems. So we had looked into that, and we had read Elliot Coleman's uh, The New Organic Grower, and basically we just started that way. And, uh, yeah, eight years later, the farm uh, really grew, but it never grew in size. It's always the same acre and a half, but we've managed to really pump up the production and always staying really profitable because the the margins have been the same ever since we started. We're just like growing more on the same space, so we're optimizing. Right, what right. Oh, okay, so so Jean Martin, to the extent that you're comfortable, can you share some of those numbers? Yeah, well, we're in an northern climate, so our season extends from March to December, and uh, usually our CSA, our CSA is 140 families on uh, 21 weeks delivery, and we also do two farmers markets quite big actually so we load up the truck it's a one-ton truck twice a week to go to different markets and overall last this year it was uh, again our best season and we grew for a hundred and forty thousand dollar worth of vegetables which is not bad considering that we're farming on an acre and a half that's uh very very impressive and well beyond the kind of production that i've been able to uh to realize myself so that's just fantastic um, and and these are at reasonable price, I should say. Also, you know, this is not we're not jacking prices. It's yeah, we're and, in, and we're I can, in Quebec here, and we're not in we're not in New York City. I can attest to that. I, I because in your book, you you have some charts that that reveal some of the prices you charge, and and very reasonable indeed. Okay, so can you now just talk a little bit about how this book came about? Where where did the inspiration come? What when? At what point? So so at some point, I have to assume that you you felt like you had something to share, and you decided yeah. you wanted to write about it. Yeah, and, and uh, you know, the fact that we, we didn't grow up on a farm and, you know, my wife and I, we've been both involved in this project from start, so it's, uh, it's you know, our common intelligence and, and work that developed the farm, but 
you know, we, we've learned farming from such a different perspective. Farming in New Mexico, Norton, New Mexico, and big farms, they're, they're just, they just don't exist there. And uh, when we came back, we kind of just evolved uh, in a way that we thought was common sense. Which we wanted to keep on using hand tools, and we did want to take the route of, uh, you know, mechanization and buying a tractor. When we bought the farm here, it would have been common sense to kind of like, opt for a mechanized system and, and get a tractor and get more productive in that way. But we felt that because of our land scarcity, we didn't have that option. So we just kind of looked elsewhere to get more productive. And uh, so the farm evolved like that for a few years. And, and uh, in the meantime, I was working with Ikitai, which coordinate one of uh, Canada's biggest network of CSA farmers. And I was acting as a mentor for uh, aspiring and starting out uh, farmers. And I was I was always comparing with what we were doing, and I was, you know, these guys were doing lots of work, putting all their heart into their season, but at the end, the production was just not enough to support all the effort they were putting into this. And that's when I kind of clicked that what we were doing here, the results were so different because we were doing things differently. And uh, it got me going with the idea that perhaps it was, it, it was good, good information to pass along, And also in French, you know, there just wasn't there just wasn't any book talking about growing veggies commercially. Also, you know, so I, you know, I felt uh, that it was it was something that was valuable, and so I put uh, two big big winters into it, and one full summer even. So I hired two person to take up my place, and uh, I spent big chunk of one summer continuously writing, trying to to not just pass along what we were doing, but my idea from start was to, you know, when, when people don't have experience in something, I think that to have a guidebook or a guideline or a mentor that's there to just tell them how they are do, they're doing their thing, that could be a helpful pointer. So my idea was to describe in details everything that we do from, you know, March till the end in, in detail and trying to explain why we do things in a certain way, why it works, And uh, my ultimate goal was that for, 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 for aspiring farmers or starting farmers to understand their farm as a system and, and make sure that the links between each things are well understood beforehand so that when you start your project, you can really have solid base to, to go on. Right. And in a nutshell, that was pretty much that. <clears throat> So talk a little bit, I mean, you don't need to go into all the details of the English translation, but I think one thing worth mentioning is the crowdsourcing campaign you did to help fund it. Can you talk about that? Yeah, that was great. And uh, the book, when it came out in French, the, the title is Le Jardinier Maraché, which translates literally to the market gardener. It, it was a big success in Quebec. It's like absolutely like astonishing, the number of, of copies that were sold And uh, it was funny, if I can tell the story, Jordan, because when the publisher published the book, they weren't sure about if it would be hot or not. So they, they had a thousand copies in the first print, and it took, I think, a week for all these uh, books to, to be sold out. So the book was back order for four weeks, and people were just buying the book, buying the book, buying the book. And in Quebec, we have this, li this uh, bookstore that's called Renaud-Brie, like a Barnes and Nobles. And because they were taking orders for four weeks of a book that they didn't have, the orders just piled up. And when it came out again, the book was number two beside Fifty Shades of Grey, <laughs> the bestsellers list. 
<laughs> and I have pictures of this, and it was just like, wow, you know, this, this is a technical book about how to grow and start your farm organically, and it's number two in the best-selling list in Quebec. And, uh, yeah, that was quite a laugh, but it, it was really popular. And then my friends from uh, Ontario, I went there and did a workshop about what we were doing on our farm, and uh, there was one uh, organization, Farm Start, They support and help and promote uh, young farmers to start their own farms. So they, they, uh, these are, they were also my friends from uh, McGill, and uh, they read some French. So they they had read the book and thought it was good. So they they started a, a crowdfunding project to to get money to translate it into English, and it also picked up really good. And I think it took six months to raise twenty thousand. And when that happened. Uh, New Society Publisher, which is the publishing house uh, for the Market Gardener, they approached uh, Eco Société and they they cut a deal to to get the rights on the book. And then, yeah, the uh, the Market Gardener's uh, going to be a new Im- newly and improved version of the Jardinier Maraîcher, and it's coming out in uh, February. <coughs> it's very that's very exciting, and uh, <laughs> yeah, just there's just some, there's a lot of stuff to tell. It seems I just keep talking and talking. Yeah, and, and look, I know that you you uh, you give a lot of credit to Elliot Coleman's New Organic Grower as as sort of one of your go to books as you developed your own skills, and and I can say the same thing, but I can also say that I really think it was time for a bit of an update and a fresh take on uh, very, like pretty much the same set of topics, and and for that I'm really grateful that this book uh, is coming yeah. into existence. Yeah, you know, for us, um, Elliot Coleman's work uh, was really. It was really the only thing that we had for us to imagine what we're doing here now, because we we really hadn't seen it elsewhere. You know, if we have a hundred and eighty, a hundred foot permanent raised beds that do two or three successions every year, and just to just to imagine the production of all of this is is you know we had to discover it. But reading through the new organic grower, it it kind of gave us. You know the idea that this was feasible, and you know Elliot Coleman also for all the tools that he helped, uh, you know, make popular through his work with Johnny's, and these are all the tools that we're using now, and and it's because of all of this that we can we can manage. Uh, you know, we've developed the farm the way we did. So I, it's important for me to give him a lot of credit, and I just spent the last uh, week with him. He was in. We were together in Paris promoting his book in, that was translated into French, and it's just you know he's he's 75 and he's still he's still going at it and still looking for developments and it's such an inspiration for for me and I guess for for many others. It's just a wonderful human being, Elliot Coleman, and I we owe him a lot. Let's just put it that way. And I think you do you give him that credit in your book, which is great. Um, yeah. So look, before I really want to start kind of parsing some of the topics that you cover in your book, but I think, I think I just like to first. I mean, there may be people listening to at this point thinking, well, you know, a hundred and forty thousand on an acre and a half. I mean, are you doing that at the expense of stewardship? But you certainly give me the impression that that you 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 know, environmental stewardship is still foremost in your minds as as you and your partner are farming. So can you talk a little bit about the biointensive method and? And confirm or deny whether whether you are uh, uh, committed to to stewardship while at the same time yeah, maximizing production. Yeah, for sure. We're we're definitely not mining the soil here. I mean, the soil that we have now is much better than the one we we inherited when we bought the farm. 
uh, to give you an example, when we started here, it was already a pretty good soil. It's loamy, loamy soil here. But the fact that we've been growing on permanent raised beds and we haven't plowed for more than eight years and we, the, all of our techniques have evolved towards this idea of minimum tillage where we try to, we try to reduce all the, you know, all the, the soil disturbance that we can. So we minimize that and by adding a lot of compost, by doing a, you know, a pretty well-designed crop rotation, and uh, we've just, you know, just to give you an example, the soil here now, the uh, last year we had a um, soil, soil audit due, and, and uh, the organic matter is around 10%, so it really, really went up fast. We've Effectively, what we've been doing is building up soil here, and uh, there's a lot of books out there about, bio-intensive, about, you know, grow-intensive, and they talk about this idea of building up soil. And for us, it was about taking these things and, and bringing them to a commercial scale. And uh, these ideas, are they, they work really well together because when you, when you pay attention to soil and to biology and you reduce your disturbance of the soil, like we've moved away from using the rotor tiller, for instance, because of that, and uh, we we use a broad fork to aerate the soil instead. It just and we we rely on the earthworms to do biological tillage now. And these ideas, you know, when we were looking at them ten years ago, they seemed interesting and it was really conceptual. But now, you know, looking backwards, that was that these ideas are really good and they can help not only production but make you more efficient into all this process. And that really. If you went through the book and you read it all or part of it, you'll understand that efficiency is what we're really aiming at, at every aspect of our farm. Because for us, it's not about just maximizing the yields and the input, but it's about doing it uh, in the most efficient way possible. Because our goal at the farm has always been that, is we want to be profitable, but we also want to have time to do other stuff, <laughs> to have you know a life. And so we focused on efficiency everywhere we could, and that allows us to do, you know, works of eight to five and uh, to still pump out a lot of vegetables. And that's the thing. People think that because we don't have a tractor and we're not mechanized that we're not efficient, but actually I, I kind of think that it's, it's the reverse. <laughs> it's because we're organized so differently that we are efficient in many different ways. Yeah, yeah, you know, I, I gotta say, Jean-Martin, one thing, I, perhaps <clears throat> what excites me most about this book is that for years now, I have been enamored of the idea of, you know, reducing tillage uh, yeah. and, and really intensive growing, but skeptical that it could be done on a commercial scale. Do you know what I mean? And, and, and yep. you've really, you've really, you've provided a blueprint for me uh, a bunch of techniques I wasn't really considering, you know, that, that I, I can't wait to try or to start incorporating. Yep. And that, like, <laughs> really, because, and I think there's a lot of people like that, the the commercial producers who, who, who again, as an ideal thought, think tillage, <clears throat> reduced tillage is, is, uh, is great, but found that in practice it was difficult to achieve. And, and uh, you've, you've figured yeah, but, it out. You've kind of well, provided that. I I think that uh, yeah, we we really gave a lot of thought about that, and just the fact, just the permanent bed story. There's, there's so much to say just about that. So many farmers I know in the spring, you hear that they can't wait to go in their fields, you know, 
and they need to wait for you know proper conditions to go in with the tractor and work the soil and but you know we don't work the soil it's it's the beds are there and they they've been built since uh you know 2005 and we just cultivate the the surface and we use a a two-wheel tractor that's so light it doesn't compact anything and so you know why go through all this this uh this plowing and then this disking and this hilling when you can just do without it and and that was you know why one of the reason why we we thought we didn't need a tractor because we didn't need to be doing all these soil work for the bed preparation the beds were made and then the other thing came about when you know usually people associate a tractor work with with tillage you know for for weeding and it's when you when you look into that you understand that the rows and the spacing between the rows is always determined by the weeding tools. And usually in a tractor setup, these spacings are pretty much far apart. Far apart. You know, we work on on 30-inch bed systems here, and usually, you know, for example, we'll put five rows of carrots on 30-inch. These are intensive spacings, and since we have good soil structure, hasn't been compacted, hasn't been overworked, you know, the roots, they can really shoot down, so we get quality carrots, even on a tight spacing. But if you compare that to mechanized growers that are my neighbors here, you know, they'll do five rows of carrots over, I don't know, like uh, six feet, yeah. seven feet. Yeah. And uh, so th- there's, a, there's a big gain in efficiency, let's say if you're put- putting a row cover. If you're putting a row cover over five rows of carrots on 70 on 30 inch or five rows of carrots, a row cover over five rows that's on seven feet or eight feet, you know, you're going to need five lot, times a lot more, more material. Row cover. That's a great point. So it's going to take, it's going to take five times more material, cost five times more money. It's going to take five times more, you know, more work to do the same thing. And this kind of efficiency, we've, We've really kind of put a lot of thought into that, and it, it makes a lot of sense to concentrate the growing area. And that's why you'll probably hear me say, you know, growing bigger instead of better, uh, growing better instead of bigger. And this is the kind of idea I think needs to be promoted more or talked about. Right. So, so let's um, let's let's jump right into. So, what I've done is I've 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 kind of um, compiled a list of topics that I I wanted to ask you about. And I, the list is more or less in, in order of your chapters in the book. Okay, so yep. we're just gonna we're just gonna. I may not get to all of them, but they're all. I think they'll be of interest to market gardeners in general. And, and what I'll ask you to do is kind of talk about with with each topic, talk about the some observations you've made about that topic or mistakes you think some growers are making with regards to that Great. topic. Sound good? Yep. Okay. So can you talk about the benefits of how? Can you talk about how you standardize your garden layout and why that's so important to your system? Yeah, I, that's a basic, that's a fundamental that I hope everybody's going to pick up on. We've standardized, uh, the width of the beds are 30 inch. And if you're market gardening and you're planning on not using a tractor for, for doing your commercial operation, that's, these are the standard widths that you need to be using because now all the tools that are, that are being developed, they're, they're using 30 inch as a standard. And if you look uh, at the, the tools that Johnny's have been developing or promoting for the last 10 years, these are the standards. And there's uh, there's different reasons also to go with 30-inch. I, for one, really appreciate the fact that you can cross over the beds really easily. 
And when you're harvesting in the middle of the bed, you're not hyperextending your back. So these are like more subtle reasons, but then again, harvesting is half the work on the farm, and if I want to be doing this job for 40 years, this kind of detail makes is, is important. But I think even more important than the width is the length. And we've standardized the length of all of our bed, so they're all 100 foot long, and what the, that does is that all the material that we use, the row covers, the drip tape, the irrigation lines, the insect nets, they're all 100 foot long. So you're never losing time. I don't know if this happened to you. It happened to me when I was working on other farms. We would go in the shed looking for the row cover that was the length we were looking for, and you'd spend two hours there. And this is silly. You're losing time for nothing. So just by standardizing the length of the bed, it makes all these equipment really a lot more versatile. You need less of them. And uh, also the other thing is that the bed on our farm became a unit of measure. So now, since everything is 100 foot, we know that there's 300 broccolis that go in in a bed. We know yeah, the density for all the vegetables. We know the yield of all our vegetables because we've measured them over a couple of years. And since it's always the same bed length, we know this. these figures have been easy to add up. And we know, for example, that our fertilization is five wheelbarrows per 100-foot bed because we're not calculating, you know, yields per acres or yields per hectares that, you know, for the most part doesn't say anything to us. You know, we don't understand our farm as an acre or we understand it as a bed. Mm-hmm. And then there's just 180 of them that we manage. So that that I would say that that we were really lucky when we started to have experienced growers talk to us about this important fundamental and it's been a it's been an important part of our farm design, the standardizing of the bed width and the bed length. Right, right. Okay, great. Thank you. So let's yeah, and and I, I you know if you think about it, it's it really makes a lot of sense. And so for people that have already their farm design, sometimes they're like, "Ouch! I should have thought about this before." But you know, my book is geared not just, but especially to people who are thinking about designing or starting a new farm so that they can make these changes right off the bat. Right, right. Okay, so Jean-Martin, let's move on to um, the topic of tillage. Uh, I'm just curious, Jordan, what did you think about that? Is that how you've designed uh, Uh, your... your... Yes, more or less. I mean, you make the point in your book, Jean-Martin, that 100 feet is incidental. That's what works for your system. Yeah. That what the the key point is that is to standardize your beds and and uh, yeah. for us what we have been working on uh, was all of our beds are forty five feet but we have we have the odd block of beds that are that are not that length and and I completely agree I mean I've worked enough with standardization that I completely agree with the concept you take it to a much you know what I found what was interesting about your book having been market gardening for three years in some ways I felt so reassured by reading the book because you're clearly doing Jean Martin just about everything better than I am. Okay. And that, and that my, my partner Vanessa and I are, but, um, I also saw that I'm, I'm like 80% there that a lot of my instincts are right. And then I'm, I'm on the way and your book's going to help me get there. So, uh, I, I actually was funny because I thought I might read it and it just, just in reading it, just feel bad about myself a hundred times, but really, 
it felt great. It felt great to, that, that a lot of the decisions I've been making are on the right track, and, and that yeah, the standardization well, is one of them. I'm super glad to hear that. And I, from what I've heard a lot from people who've read it, is that a lot of people think, were thinking that this was a good approach, and it was a good idea to, to, to go that route. And, but just they, people didn't have examples of where it was done or how it was done properly. And uh, so I think this book provides that. It's a guideline. It's a guidebook. And uh, from there, you know, people pick and choose what, what talks to them and where they see them. You know, if you've made connection reading the book, Jordan, that's what I wanted. Because when, when people make connection in their heads, ah, 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 then that means that they're learning and they're thinking that they can improve what they're doing. And that's what we want because we want... We want people to have either better farms or better life mm -hmm. farming. Well, so let's move on then, because I've got specific questions with regards to some of these other <laughs> topics. I definitely, right. I definitely engage with the book, Jean Martin, in, in about 20, 20 or thirty ways. Um, let's talk about tillage a little bit. First of all, I think some people would find it surprising to hear that that uh, you know you, you you talk about how many of these hundred foot beds do you have. 180. 180, it, and you, it, you yeah. broad fork every one of them at least once a year, it sounds like. Well, it, it pretty much comes down to this, but we don't broad fork systematically. We broad fork before a crop that has deep roots. And um, in the copy I send you, there's not the last part of the book, which is you know farm notes, on crop notes for every vegetables, and I explain which one we systematically use the broad fork. And, but basically what it is is that you know, some roots they really need to go down, and so you're going to brought for it. But if you don't, you know, when I do a salad or a salad mix, I'm not going to go with the broth. I see, I see. So anyway, that was just a, that was a, yeah. a, a brief uh, observation. But, but you know what I really want to ask you on this topic, <clears throat> and I'm being selfish here. I'm just thinking about what, what I was ahead, thinking that's about. fine. You, you clearly, if, if anyone who reads the book will see, you clearly have figured out a lot of ways to reduce tillage. Now, you still, you really advocate, rather than using a tiller, you use what's called a power harrow on the back of your yeah. walking tractor. Yeah. One, one question I have, because I've also made some efforts at reducing tillages, it appears to me that you're still running the walking tractor over the beds. They're not, those yep. wheels, the wheelbase isn't clearing the beds, is it? Yeah, no, they're, wa they're rolling on the beds. Right, and so as far as you're concerned, that's a fairly... It's a, it's a yeah. sacrifice you're willing to make in, in having a walking tractor rolling over those beds. Yeah, because, you know, everything we've been doing, Jordan, on the farm, and uh, we've been experimenting, with, we've been looking for results, and uh, we've been trying things, and when I see something that's creating a result that I don't like, I make a change. But we've had, you know, on our beds, if you, we have about a foot deep of, you know, good soil that's that's really not compacted and good, and that shows to me that the, the walking tractor does not create enough compaction for it to become a problem. And the fact that the beds are permanent, what's great about that is that the, the walkways, the, the pathways, they're also permanent, so the compaction is always at the same place because one, one human walking always at the same place, harvesting and doing all the work, is a lot more compactive than the walking tractor that goes on the bed once or twice every year. And uh, you mentioned the power harrow. When we went to France uh, early on, I was in 2003, and, and the growers there, they had all moved away from the rotor tiller. And there's good reason, and I think the book describes why, to, to, to move away from it. 
And and the Paro Harrow, the fact that it has tines that are working on the horizontal, uh, it's like a reversed way of, of uh, tilling, and, and you can only till the surface. Like, we, we till on an inch or two, so it's really surface tillage. It's such a... It's such a great tool for bed preparation that for us it really kind of changed everything. When we when we started, we were using the tiller, and man, it felt great. You know, with one pass of a of a tiller with a with a walking tractor, like with like a BCS 15 horsepower tiller, is quite strong, and it was it looked great. You know, the soil was really um, it was really finely grinded, and you could put your hand into it, and it looked perfect. But what the tiller does is that it just kind of pulverizes your soil structure every time. And over the course of many years, what happens is you just get soil that can get really compacted because you want to have this this grumulated, you know, soil structure. Mm-hmm. You want to have big particles in there. And uh, the earthworms also, I don't, they, they're not really excited when you go with the tiller. <laughs> so. So we moved away from that, and we use the Paro Harrow, which is, to my, I, to my taste, really superior. But uh, perhaps you read also about that when we started using tarps, that really changed everything. Also, like big tarps that we put on the beds, and we leave them there for two to three weeks. And when you remove the tarps, it's just amazing. Like the beds are clean. Okay. And you've so, done so no intervention, and boom. You have clean beds that you can work into. All right, so I'm gonna. I have the tarps on my list. I have some specific questions about yeah. the tarps, but I think the, the where I want to jump to next. Look, I have a suggestion possibly for a future edition that I think might be missing from the book. Great, go ahead. And this was missing from. This is missing from most books, certainly from Elliot Coleman, and it drives me crazy. <laughs> I really want to know when both you and Elliot Coleman spend a lot of time going into the topic of crop rotation. Right and yep. how and, and both of you really lay out really well how you rotate your crops. But how does double and triple cropping factor into crop rotation? I have never figured that out myself. Right, so you know, let, just just like presumably most people, at least part of the reason for crop rotation is to ensure that you don't have the same crop families in the soil all the time. Yep. So how do you? I know I've heard you already mention in this interview that you do do you do succession planting. So you're you're yep. you're doing maybe two crops in the same bed in a year, maybe even three. So how yep. do you do that in the context of a crop rotation? Well, okay. So I, I I'm going to try my best to explain it. For sure, it's it's a lot more well described in the book. But we've designed the crop rotation in the in the design phase of the farm. So that was we've we've designed we've organized the crop rotation we've laid out the premises that we wanted to respect before even doing the first shoveling of the, of the permanent raised bed. So we've conceptualized the crop rotation and in our rotation it's on ten years and we have the heavy feeders that are at one block which is which is sixteen beds of a hundred foot and we have ten of them and that's how we've laid out the farm to follow the rotation and. These heavy feeders are always followed by light feeders, and these light feeders, there's five blocks in my rotation, so half of my garden is always with light feeders, and these light feeders could be either roots or uh, lettuces or, you know, uh, greens. Mm -hmm. And I just go from having radishes to salad heads to... I don't know, a green manure, or if I have time, perhaps 
uh, outputting, uh, you know, beans or peas. And so these are the only beds that have this successions. Let's say I do a broccoli, which is on my heavy feeder in my rotation. The broccoli, they won't have... A succession the, planting. They won't have a succession. Okay. They'll have a cover crop okay. either before or after. Okay, fantastic. And, and this is the reason why we don't do a lot of intercropping on the farm, which would probably boost our production and yield even more, but then it would add a lot of complexity to manage this with the crop rotation. You mean intercropping in the in the you mean when in the in one given growth cycle Yeah, you, putting radishes in the broccoli. Right, right. Okay. So, if so I that, if you do that, it's interesting from a yield point standpoint, but then if you try to manage a rotation where you're trying to, you know, make it four years be, between, you know, broccolis or you know, for other it's it's just it adds a lot of complexity. I I'm pretty sure it, it'll get done as more people look into these kind of ideas. But for us, at time being, it's just too complex to manage. Okay, so if I have you right, you've got 10, so you've got 10 blocks, 10 garden blocks, yep. okay? Yep. Five of them are heavy feeders. Yep. And in those, in those five blocks, you only basically put one crop in per year. Yeah. In the other five blocks, which you call light feeders, yep. uh, you're fine with growing more than one crop per year, two to three crops yep. per year. Okay. Yeah, because these are these are crops that, since they're not taking a lot of time in the garden, let's say a radish takes 40 days mm-hmm. total. Disease don't have a lot of time to establish themselves there. Yeah. Or they don't have a lot of times for pathogens to develop. So these crops are less susceptible to to you know to to foster disease over the long run. It's very different if you're putting, you know. Uh, cucumbers that are there'll be there for the whole season, or peppers, or broccolis, or eggplants, or all these crops that stay longer. So, so that that's why it you can really combine this idea of having successions, but also having a rotation. And if you really take the time to think this through, you can end up having a crop rotation that is really simple to follow, but it took a lot of complexity to build. To get to the simplicity. And, and it's all about that. It's about taking time, reflection time, in the design stage so that in the end, when you're doing your work in the summer, it's just an easy follow-through. And uh, you know, my, my good friends are Dan Brisebois and Fred Theriot. They wrote a great book about uh, crop... Uh, crop planning for organic veggie growers. <laughs> crop planning. Pub- published and, by Cog, and, yep. Yeah, and, and, you know, these ideas, they, they're, they're also really well-developed in that. And because we've been growing our farms together for all these years in our networks of farmers, we've, these ideas, we've been playing with them a lot. But uh, you can really bring complexity down in the design, and then it follows through in a process that's easy to follow in the, in the heat of the summer. Okay, so, so, I, so just to get a sense, I want to move into the, 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 uh, the topic of just maintaining your soil fertility, okay? Um, yeah. I'll just start, since we were talking about double cropping. Uh, in those light feeder blocks, do you yep. just do, when you're going to do, like, an application of your fertilizers and compost, is that once a year, even if you do three crops in the space, or do you do it for each crop? All right, so we've tried to rationalize the, uses, the use of compost. So we use compost, and we use a lot of it. We use about 40 tons a year <laughs> on, on an acre and a half. <laughs> yeah, that's a lot of compost. And it's only on half 
of the garden because the only blocks that are getting the compost are the heavy feeders. Mm -hmm. So we're putting a lot of compost in one block, which are the heavy feeders, and they're happy because they want to have a lot of compost. And then the the next year, the that that block is is succeeded by a light feeder, which we've just talked about, which is lettuce, radishes, and these guys are taking the compost that was there the year before, and they're kind of still they're still nourishing themselves from it. But we also had we also farm we also fertilize with chicken manure here, because we understand that the chicken manure what it does is that it's it doesn't really feed the soil, but it feeds the plant. And and our whole fertilization plan is, is geared towards that idea. We're feeding the soil with compost, but we're also feeding the plant to make sure that it gets nitrogen it needs to develop its leaf uh, and, and that it's, you know, it's well-timed, the, uh, the, crop retire- the crop requirement with what you're giving it. So, you know, we've, we've moved beyond the idea of just adding compost and kind of blindfully thinking that all is well. We've, we've really went into the idea of understanding each crop requirement, and we've, we've made a plan, a fertilization plan, that takes, takes this in, into account, takes the, the NPK of the compost that we're adding to make sure that it's balanced. And uh, So again, it's, it's, it's about putting a bit more complexity into it, but in the end, what we want is to have we don't want to be over-fertilizing because, you know, people don't understand, but, you know, organic farmers, they can pollute just as much as conventional farmers if they put too much, too much uh, fertilization. Absolutely. In thing. And, and we definitely don't want to have uh, under-fertilized crops because we're doing it intensive here. So we need to make sure that there's enough good stuff in there to feed the crops that are, you know, densely uh, seeded or transplanted. Right, right. Okay, so so I want to talk about soil tests in a minute, but I just want to ask you. I mean, or, uh, I've got to assume, and I think you you said this in your book. You are bringing in this chicken manure and a lot of the compost from off farm, correct? Yeah, because we don't have a tractor, so we don't have a loader. And you know, I don't know if you ever tried to. I have, uh, and it sucks <laughs> to go with a pitchfork and turn forty tons of you know green material. And uh, since we don't have animals also on the farm, that would be that would mean importing, you know, um, importing manure, and it would be the same cost as importing compost that a professional person made. And they have all the equipment to turn in at the right moment. They measure the temperature, and and also I, you know, you've asked me what 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 kind of problems I see on farms, and I've visited a lot of farms on for many years. And it's just people don't make the difference between what make makes good compost and the difference between, you know, raw manure and compost. And one of the biggest difference between both of them is that when in raw manure that you're putting in your field, you're importing weed seeds and you're you might be importing lots of it. So you're thinking that you're doing something right, putting manure but you're actually also bringing in seeds that's going to bring you more work later on because you could have a lot of weeding problems. And so these things need to be thought through. And so compost, I believe, is the ultimate amendment, and it needs to be good compost to really make it worthwhile. Another, another writer who really, and gardener who agrees with you is, is Steve Solomon, who uh, makes, makes a similar case in his book, The Intelligent Gardener, really believes there's a big difference between really good compost and... and poor compost 
Um, yeah, and I, I I don't even have the technical skills myself. After you know, I've been growing for 13 years to to know how to make good compost. Because if you really want to do it well, you need to be measuring the temperatures, you need to water at the same, you know, at the good time, and you need to turn it a lot. And like I said, you know, doing it with a with a with forks, even if I have you know a lot of volunteers, it's just not efficient at all. And for me, buying compost it represents about two percent of my expenses. So I'm already so busy elsewhere, it just makes a lot of sense to buy it. And, and uh, are you certified organic, uh, Jean-Martin? Yeah. So you, yep, you, you, you're able, you, you've been able to source uh, chicken, uh, uh, chicken manure and compost that, that uh, is uh, yep, simpatico. Certified with, organic. Yeah, yeah and, and there's, a, there's more and more of, of these products coming out because, you know, there's, there's an art gardeners are all, you know, all gardeners are all going organic, obviously, because why would you want to put, you know, chemicals in your garden? But, uh, yeah, and the compost we've been using for, for the longest time is it was really rich with peat moss. And, uh, you know, I, I understand that for some people peat moss is controversial, but, you know, if you want to be building soil, peat moss is probably the best amendment overall. Maybe you have clay or sand or whatever. It's just peat moss is like this magical thing where it just makes your soil better. And we've put, you know, like I said, we've been, putting about it comes down to about 70 tons per acre of compost we've been putting over over the years it's quite a lot oh wow that's 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 incredible thing and I, the fact i know that you know the fact that the beds are, are permanent really helps in that regard you're not spreading compost everywhere in the field and then you know forming your beds you have your beds and you're just you're concentrating the area where the compost is is uh deposited so it just makes more sense it's rationalizing your input yeah totally and when you think back just thinking 70 tons an acre uh you know or really it turns into 40 tons an acre 35 tons once you factor in yeah it's just it's just since but it's it's like it's it's we, we use 40 ton on an acre and a half on an acre and a half but then we just put it on half of the bed yeah so it comes down to that it's no it's it, it, actually it comes down to eight wheel barrels per 100 foot Right. So it, it's interesting it because, you I, you know, I've read some of the older books, like the original sort of um, uh, treaties on, on organic farming, talked about a maintenance, a maintenance uh, application of about five tons a year. So it really it really gives a good idea of of just how, you know, the role that that must play in your in, in making sure your production is top notch. Yeah. And, and I understand the idea of maintenance because now, you know, the beds, the soils it really changed in uh, the last. You know, we've our idea was to build soil as rapidly as we could, and we've we've managed the first five years doing this. We we put a lot of compost, and we saw the result not just for on the crops, but on the soil structure. Because when you're adding a lot of compost, you're also adding, like I said, a lot of peat moss, and then your soil structure gets better, and then that just helps the overall system. And at one point, we were understanding also that it, we don't need to be putting as much soil-building material now. And now we've kind of changed the way we're fertilizing on our farm, and we're putting a lot less compost, and we're using different compost that is less soil-building and more like fertilizing compost. And we have just as good results. But we had to go through the process of building up soil, which I think is key in understanding you know, biologically intensive cropping system is this idea that you can build your soil. And this, 
this is done everywhere in Asia. This is done in South America. It seems that when you're bringing big fields with tractors and you're farming, you know, I don't know, 10 acres, it just doesn't make sense, this idea of changing your soil because it would require amount of, just, you know, astronomical amount of, 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 uh, of, green man- of manure or, you know, other amendments. But if you're doing it on a small, intensively cropped uh, plot, then it makes sense. So, anyway, I don't know. Does that answer the? Yeah, yeah, yeah. It totally does. <laughs> I'm talking a lot here. I just, yeah, I, we got to move on, but I want to, I want to quickly confirm. You're a big advocate of regular soil tests. I think in the first year, it's a really good idea to. I, I, I actually, what I think, it's a bad idea to go without them because you, you kind of need to know what you, what you have as a soil, and uh, you, you're going to need your soil test to develop a proper fertilization plan. You need to know your pH. And so I think in the first few years, it's a, it's a too good of a, a tool, even though it's not perfect, and I understand how it's not. But it's like, for me, crop requirements and soil tests, they're like a, uh, a SID. How do you say that in English? A, um, is this something you aim for? They just help give you a, a better portray of what's going on, even though if it's not proper, helps out so right i think of a major it seems like a a a very important aspect of your success is the attention to detail you put into your nursery would would that be fair to say yeah i think that's where having a green thumb is uh, makes a difference and also just basically the the way you start your plants it's going to make the rest of the season is going to be determining the rest of the season. Okay. So people, people, look, if people, if my listeners don't go out and get this book, I'm going to hunt them down and give them the scolding like they never had. So we don't need to, we don't need to go into it, but just give me, give me a, a, a mistake you see too many, too many growers making with regards to the nursery setup. I see a lot of people that, uh, I'm not a big fan of soil blocks for one. I think they're a lot less efficient than using uh, cell flats, and I've used both. And so, uh, so cell flats, and then just you know, this is not an area where you want to be reinventing the thing, because if you're using cell flats, then you need to have the proper um, the proper uh, soil mix, and then you need to be following the proper guideline for the amount of time each crop needs to stay in their cell. That's really important, and to harden them off at the end also is really important because if you if you're taking vegetables young seedlings that have been cocooned in a perfect environment heated at 18 uh, degrees celsius at night and then you bring them out to the garden the next day man they're going to have a shock and they'll get over it but it'll impact their overall productivity big time and their resistance to disease if you create stress and what you want when you're doing seedling is at every step of the operation to have minimal stress for the plant. Right. And so this is where attention to detail makes a big difference. And so having a good soil mix is really important. And one, uh, one other thing, one mistake that I commonly see and that we used to also do is to, to heat the greenhouse because we have freezing temperatures here and it can be quite cold to, you know, to go and to, Instead of heating the greenhouse at 18 degrees Celsius at night, just since it's freezing, you're, you want to save on propane or on fuel, so you're going to 
put it at 14 or 13, thinking that you're saving money. You're actually not because if the crops are not at optimal growing temperatures, they're going to be, take more time to produce. And in market gardening, you make money to, when you're the first at market with your crops. Right. That's your advantage. So you want to be really early, especially in our, in our northern climate. I don't know how it is where you are, but here, you know, we aim to have an abundance of everything first of June. And that's really what we aim for. So the having a lot of time spent understanding uh, how to crop plan right to get these vegetables at time and to really have the, the greenhouse nursery go full steam ahead makes a big difference. And, and mind you, you know, our equipment is super low-tech. It's not fancy equipment, it's, and it's, it's not expensive. It's just learning the skill set to do each step properly. And uh, that's what we've been learning over, over time. Right. Um, okay, that's great. Now, look, I'm not going to get through all these topics, so I'm going gonna, I'm gonna to close it off here because people, <laughs> people need to read your book. They really do. It's a fantastic book. But I do one thing that uh, I I really sh- I, I I I really agreed with when I read it, but I I I I, I did it wrong. Uh, is how much to invest when you're starting out. Uh, <laughs> so before you tell me what you think is the uh, like a, a, a target amount, I will tell you that when we got started the first year, we gave ourselves a budget of five thousand dollars. Now that's in the context of being uh, leasing on another farm that had a bunch of equipment, but. In your book, what do you talk about being a target first-year kind of startup budget? (laughs) Well, in my book, I I think we explain that the fact that our farm has been profitable ever since we started is because we have low expenses. And uh, But still, if I I broke out all of the thing, the material, the equipment you need, and it came down to Mm $39,000, which is way higher than 5000 but mind you uh, this 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 all this equipment is new it's going to last i don't know 20 years even more and if you take a loan at 10% over 5 years you'll end up paying 8000 a year for all the equipment you need new and if you compare that that expense not going to be the only expense, but just for the capital expenditure in comparison to the amount of cash you can be generating with, you know, just one acre of a market garden that's well-designed and well-run. It's just, it's not a lot. And so for me, ever since we started, the idea was that if you know a tool will help you out at first, you shouldn't hesitate too much to buy it because the first year are the hardest. That's where all you're building, you're building clientele, you're building your infrastructure, you're building, you're perhaps learning the skill. So you don't want to be putting off these these tools that can really make your life much more easier and efficient uh, too too far away. And, so. and look, that's I in retrospect, I looked back. I mean, before I even read this in your book, I I had decided we should have spent a lot more at, at first, and we were we were yeah. I think there's a lot of people in their 20s just getting started and they're scared of even that much debt. But I just, looking back, I I see how much more efficient we would have been right out of the gate. And I I think we should have at least spent 20 rather than the five that we spent. 
Yeah, and, and I think if people, you know, they'll, they'll, they'll hear 39000 and they'll think, wow, that's a lot of money. But if you go through the list, these are all, these are hoes, these are greenhouses, these are furnaces, these are all, these are all stuff that you're going to need to be buying one way or another. But if you leave out the tractor, and, if, and it, you've asked me about common mistakes that I see also, Jordan, one, one of the biggest things I've, I, I see all the time is that these people that are starting a CSA with 30, 50, even 100 baskets, and then they have these people that are giving them the, their old tractor, and people think that this is a favor. But this, so they're starting all their, all their design with this old tractor that really makes things really not efficient on many aspects. And then they just, you don't need to be with a tractor if you have 100 CSA. Mm-hmm. If you're doing 300 or 500 or 5,000, you need a tractor. But when you look down the tractor route, you quickly understand that you don't need one tractor. You're going to need another for this and another for that. And all of the seasoned growers that are my friend, they all have now at least five or six tractors. Mm-hmm. And they also have a garage and they also have a mechanic because these old tractors are always breaking down. And so... I guess if there's something I'd like to say to aspiring young farmers is that there's nothing wrong with tractors. I love them myself, but they don't make the work more efficient or more profitable. And going with a two-wheel tractor might be a great option. And and starting small and even staying small, you know, we've been we've been farming for 13 years on less than an acre and a half, and we're still very profitable. And uh, it's just. It's just a different, uh, different uh, perspective, and you can have different results. Okay. Well, look, where, so, yeah. where, Jean Martin, where, when this comes out, where can people get the book? Well, people can visit the uh, the website themarketgardener.com. They can buy it direct there. It's published by New Society Publisher, which I'm really proud of because I think they're an amazing uh, publishing house. They're based in uh, in Victoria in uh, in BC. And, um, yeah, I, I, I kind of think it'll be available pretty much everywhere. And if it's not at your, at local, uh, bookstores, you should, people should just ask about it and say, this is a good book. Uh, could you hold it? <laughs> just that makes it so that perhaps other people will see it and be interested by it. Right on. Well, uh, Jean-Martin Fortier, thank you very much for coming on the Ruminant Podcast. Yeah, and also, Jordan, I'll be coming down to BC and uh, I'm going to spend 10 days there doing conferences and workshop and meeting uh, Curtis Stone, my good friend, Kelowna. So hopefully you guys can uh, pick up and uh, join us there. Yeah, well, I'm 20 minutes from there, so I'll be there. Great. Hey, great talking to you, Jordan, and uh, thank you for the time.